Uh, this evening's lecture is part of a year-long series sponsored by the Iva E. Patterson and Dale Gilmore Visiting Artists and Lecture Series, endowed by Geneva grad uh, Paul Gilmore from the class of 1931. And this year's schedule for guests at Geneva include uh, Nobel Prize-winning chemist Roald Hoffman, art historian Elizabeth Kessler, State Department official Marcia Grant, uh, and others. So we hope you'll come back to hear more of them in, uh, in future weeks and months. The mission of Geneva College is to glorify God by educating and ministering to a diverse community of students for the purpose of developing servant leaders, transforming society for the kingdom of Christ. A transforming society is a major task, and indeed we may not be able to do it unless we are transformed ourselves. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that process of transformation through the renewing of your mind is what we are about at Geneva College. And that's the focus of this lecture series, bringing to campus speakers from a wide variety of perspectives, philosophies, and faiths. Whatever your personal perspective, we hope that this evening will be an engaging opportunity to renew your mind. Now, to introduce our speakers for the evening, I'm actually going to turn things over to uh, my old college friend and colleague, Todd Allen. Todd is a professor of communications here at Geneva, founder of the Civil Rights Bus Tour, uh, and noted as one of 50 men of excellence by the new Pittsburgh Courier. I would say that was in recognition for his leadership, not for his golf game. <laughs> Todd? See, he told me he was going to get a shot in about my golf game. I won't say anything about his basketball game, though. Speaks for itself. <laughs> well, welcome. Uh, it's indeed my honor and privilege to, uh, to introduce uh, our speakers this evening, uh, two gentlemen. And uh, Tom had asked me to, um, you know, not just share, you know, kind of the standard bio information, though I will do some of that because I want to make sure I give them their due. But in this day and age, when you really want to learn about people, you friend them on Facebook. So I'll tell you about some of their likes and, and other interests from there as well. Keith Plessy uh, is a longtime bellman uh, at the Marriott Hotel in New Orleans. Uh, he is a native of New Orleans and a graduate of John McDonough School and the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. Uh, Keith is a very talented uh, visual artist, uh, himself having painted murals uh, in schools uh, all over uh, the city, uh, many that are still, all still there uh, today. Currently, uh, he is the president of the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation, which you will hear more about this evening. If you uh, go to Facebook, Keith doesn't do Facebook that much, uh, but if you go to Facebook, some things that you will find out about him. Uh, one of his favorite musical groups is the Hot 8 Brass Band, and so if you're familiar with New Orleans, you would be familiar with them. <laughs> I don't know if this is a favorite, but uh, uh, he, he likes Tyler Perry, uh, so you might hear something about that. Uh, and a restaurant that Keith mentioned uh, is the Juju Bug Cafe, so I've got to find out a little bit more about the Juju Bug Cafe. And uh, Keith and I have one mutual friend named Keith. Keith Weldon Medley uh, is our other uh, speaker this evening, and he is the author of the book, uh, We as Free Men, Plessy versus Ferguson, the fight against legal segregation. Uh, I saw a number of you were purchasing that at the table or perhaps will purchase it following the program. Keith will be available to, both Keiths will be available actually to sign that, that for you. Uh, he also is a native of New Orleans 
and a 2001 and 2002 recipient of the Louisiana Endowment uh, for the Humanities Publication Initiative grants. Uh, he's written several articles on New Orleans history, African American history, and obviously Plessy uh, v. Ferguson. As a freelance writer, uh, he has compiled over, uh, actually I think it was about 100 or so now writings uh, on Louisiana's history and culture. If you go to Facebook and friend Keith Medley, who does spend a lot of time on Facebook, I, I told him I knew he was here because he checked in at Geneva last night. Uh, some of his musical interests are Bob Marley and Professor Longhair. One of his favorite TV shows is Treme on HBO. Uh, one of his uh, favorite athletes, I guess, is Gabby Douglas, and his interests include running and photography. Now, Keith Medley and I have two mutual friends, both named Keith. Thinking about uh, this evening and uh, what uh, Dr. Copeland uh, wanted to achieve with uh, tonight, one of the things that excites me is the opportunity to learn uh, about our history, our shared history as a nation. Uh, for those who know about the civil rights tours that I do, then you, you know how passionate I am on this subject. It's been said that few experiences connect us with our past more completely than walking the ground where this history happened. Congressman John Lewis, native uh, uh, of the South and a veteran of the civil rights movement, has advocated for the preservation and restoration of these sites. He said that our history is a precious resource and we must, all we, we must do all we can to protect and preserve and ensure its accuracy. Now while we may not be responsible for the events of the past, we are responsible for how those events get presented and preserved to future generations. Those who've been around for a while, you may remember a visit not too many years ago uh, from Dr. Terrence Roberts, who was one of the Little Rock Nine. And Dr. Roberts said it this way in his book, Lessons from Little Rock. If a dialogue is to begin, we need to know as much as possible about what's going on, past as well as present. We need to have an informed historical perspective. Last but not least, James Lowen, Lies Across America, What Our Historic Sites get, Gets Wrong, uh, says this, Americans, as Americans, we share a common history that unites us, but we also share some more difficult events, a common history that divides us. These things, too, we must remember, for only then can we understand our divisions and work to reduce them. That is the work that these two gentlemen have put their hand to uh, through this book, through their work with the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation, and through their work in commemorating history on the landscape in and around the city of New Orleans. So Geneva, please help me welcome Keith Plessy and Keith Medley. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for that introduction. Uh, have to be, I'm sure I'll have to be more careful when I put on Facebook. You left out some of the you know, quest more questionable conversations I may have. Uh, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, actually, uh, this is my first time in this area. This is not my first time in this area because uh, one of the people who are very, was very involved in the Plessy versus Ferguson case, uh, that would be Albion Tourget, actually came through Pennsylvania. He lived in Philadelphia for a while, and he finally settled in a town in western New York called Mayville. So I was on a research expedition uh, from D.C. to uh, Lake Erie, 
And so I remember passing uh, by Three River Stadium, which really stoked me because, you know, I, I was a Steelers fan at some point for one or two years. <laughs> Long time ago. But, you know, you hear about it so much. It's so legendary. It's great to drive through it. And, uh, and uh, Albion Tourget was really very instrumental. He was Plessy's national lawyer before the Supreme Court. He had fought in the Civil War on the side of the Union in the Battle of Bull Run. He got injured and had a back, uh, and it hurt his back. They thought he would never walk again. But some sort of way, he, was, he, he found a way to uh, cure himself. And he actually went back into the Civil War. He was, he was, uh, he was put into a Confederate uh, camps and everything. So, and he uh, was called the most, he was a, a white person, but they called him one of the most influential black people of that time. And uh, he was involved with the founding of the NAACP. He was memorialized by them in their first, in, you know, in their first uh, dealings. But this, uh, this case, Plessy versus Ferguson, is uh, arguably Louisiana's most famous Supreme Court case. And while many viewed the Plessy v. Ferguson case as being the cause of segregation for a long time, it is in fact, it did in fact represent the beginnings of an early civil rights movement. It involved a group of 18 Louisiana men who sought to challenge Louisiana's passage of a law that separated blacks and whites on railroad trains. This group of writers, businessmen, educators, lawyers, and a newspaper publisher constructed a well-planned, legal, and civil disobedience campaign to have, the law to have the law overturned in the courts of the land and also in the court of public opinion. So over 60 years before Brown versus the Board of Education and before Rosa Parks was arrested on a Montgomery, Alabama bus, the Citizens Committee launched a last-ditch, almost desperate effort to prevent racial segregation from becoming settled law. The committee then enlisted a shoemaker named Homer Plessy, Homer Adolph Plessy, to board a white-only train car and be arrested. The goal was to create a test case that would not only overturn the Louisiana law, but strike down all the other segregation laws that sprouted through the South after the end of the Reconstruction period in the 1870s. Now, one of Homer Plessy's qualifications as a test case was he looked white enough to obtain a ticket and board the train, but under, we, under Louisiana law, he was black enough to be arrested for doing so. For me, Plessy and Ferguson is a story where the last chapter never comes. I read about it in college, but then I was more concerned about the ramifications than its origins. The first time I considered Homer Plessy as a human being, rather than a court case, came after a friend of mine told me that his mother uh, taught a girl named Nicole Plessy in New Orleans. I wrote my first article sometime in the 1980s uh, about Plessy versus Ferguson for the New Orleans Tribune, and uh, I wrote a Smithsonian article about the case in 1994, and uh, We as Freeman was published in 2003. It's now in the second printing. And it was in 1996 when I met a 20th century Plessy relative, Keith Plessy, in an event commemorating the 100th anniversary of the United States Supreme Court decision of Plessy versus Ferguson. In 2004, Phoebe Ferguson, who is the descendant of the judge that ruled against Plessy, 
Comey after she became aware of her great-great-grandfather's role in history. A worker in the State Supreme Court Law Library told her that my book contained a chapter on Judge Ferguson. Phoebe Ferguson was living in New York as a photographer and filmmaker. The, the revelation about her grandfather precipitated her moving back to Louisiana. She and Keith uh, Plessy subsequently met at the Preservation Resource Center in New Orleans, where Keith told her it was no longer Plessy versus Ferguson, it was Plessy and Ferguson. The two have since formed a foundation for education and preservation of civil rights sites. Last June 7th, they were on the front page of the Washington Post in an article entitled, Plessy and Ferguson, Descendants of a Divisive Supreme Court Decision Unite. It was Plessy and Ferguson without the V. And under the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation, they have placed plaques around the city commemorating civil rights events and sites. Their efforts symbolically raise the question, if Plessy and Ferguson can reconcile after a century of being two names that stood for strict racial separation of citizens, then perhaps we all can move beyond the centuries of bitterness and rancor in America. They seek to move past the American conflict and forward to the America in resolution and reconciliation. So, uh, at, as of, uh, so now I'd like to bring Keith Plessy on to talk about how his name became so associated with American history. Thank you, Keith. Well, first of all, thank you for having us here. It is an honor, a privilege, and a pleasure to be here. Um, my relation to Homer Plessy is fourth generation cousin. My great grandfather was his first cousin. Homer Plessy had no children, so there are no great grandchildren, great great granddaughters, grandson, whatever. He had no children, and his sister Ida, who was born of Adolf and Rosa, his mother, uh, she also had no children. So all of his surviving relatives are cousins. I'm one of those cousins. Uh, my life was pretty much plain and simple before I met Keith Medley in 1996. Um, I, I've been a bellman at the Marriott for some 31 years now. In uh, 1981, I was hired there, and by 1996, I was well, I was very comfortable with my job. And uh, I knew I was related to Homer Plessy, but I didn't know all the history about him because of our vague coverage in the history books about the case. And as you know, I guess I can almost pose a question to you now is, what do you have in your history books about Plessy versus Ferguson? It's probably one paragraph. And that's what family members and I always discussed is why we don't know anything about the case, why we don't know anything about Homer Plessy. All we know is this paragraph. So by 1996, when the 100th anniversary of the Plessy decision was coming around, the city of New Orleans decided to honor the decision and where the case actually started. So Many universities around the country came as representatives. We had people like uh, the folks that were in the Brown versus Board of Education case, Constance Baker Motley, which you'll see on the slide uh, later on, and Jack Greenberg, who were both lawyers on the Brown case. Uh, all those folks gathered in New Orleans, and at the time, my coworkers kind of started giving me nicknames. So I was 
I was Keith at one time, and then now I became Plessy versus Ferguson to all my coworkers. So I, I would walk on the job, and I'd hit his after the after the 1996 uh, celebration. Uh, I was Plessy versus Ferguson. Hey, Plessy versus Ferguson, how you doing? I said, I'm I'm Keith, man. I'm Keith. Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. So a year goes by, and in 1997, Rosa Parks and Cecily Tyson happened to stay in my hotel. And one of my coworkers, Vincent Brown, uh, came up to me and he said, uh, hey, Keith, uh, Ms. Parks wants to see you. And I looked at him, I said, Vincent, come on, man. Man, y'all killing me with the Plessy versus Ferguson thing. What, you know, Rosa Parks? He said, yeah, Rosa Parks is staying in the hotel and she asked to see you because I told her your last name. So I go up to the, the room. I, I realized he was telling the truth. So I ran to the room, got to the room, and uh, Cicely Tyson opened the door. I said, hi, Ms. Tyson, how you doing? It's like I know her. And she said, oh, I, I know, you want to see Ms. Parks. So I walked to the back of the GM suite where she was sitting in a chair, and, you know, she's my shero. So uh, I, I kind of hit my knee. I hit a one knee, and I kissed her hand, and I said, thank you, my queen, for all your hard work. And she said, get up, boy. Your name is Plessy. You got work to do. So I, I didn't realize then what she was saying, and I, I had no idea what was about to happen over the next few years. So for those next few years, I started gaining more curiosity about the case. And I had a lot of help with Keith, with all his research that he had done. And he was kind and gracious enough to share it with me. And throughout those years from 1997 to 2003, when Keith published his book, We as Free Men, I was introduced to one of my cousins who helped Keith do the genealogy research in the book. His name is Bobby Duplissy. And you'd probably figure, well, why is his name different from yours? Because his, his ancestor was one of two brothers. Uh, Homer Plessy's grandfather was Jermaine Plessy, and he had a brother named Dominique. Well, Dominique married into a white family that moved to Lake Charles Parish. And when Dominique would sign all his, lab his, his uh, bills of lading, he would sign it D. Plessy. So we had a little racial problem within the family because the people that lived in Lake Charles, Louisiana, married into white family, they didn't want to have any association with the Germain who married a free woman of color in New Orleans who is my ancestor. Now, over 200 years go by and they had split up and they, what happened with uh, Dominique, he died in an accident and the wife took over the bills and put Du Plessy, because she used D. Plessy, what he used to sign on his bills of lading, to change the name from Plessy because she wanted no association with the Plessys in New Orleans. So from that point, 200 years go by, I don't know anybody in Lake Charles Parish. He doesn't know anybody in New Orleans. Keith's book, from the genealogy research, has Bobby helping him get all the family information. So Bobby asked Keith, do you know anybody named Plessy that lives in New Orleans? Because I know I'm related to Homer Plessy. So he introduces me to, uh, Keith introduces me to Bobby. And 200 years of separation within the family ended in 2003 when this book was published. So you go fast forward another year to 2004 and Miss Ferguson shows up.
So all this time, I'm trying to figure out, you know, I'm gathering information about my family. What's going on here, you know? And uh, 2004 rolls around. Keats book signing is at the Preservation Resource Center. I walk up to Ms. Ferguson and say, it's no longer Plessy versus Ferguson. It's Plessy and Ferguson. And it took us from 2003 to 2009 to actually form the foundation. But our friendship grew from that moment we shook hands. And Hurricane Katrina was an interruption in the middle of it. So it really tested our friendship because we stayed in touch with each other when she was in New York and I was in Memphis due to the storm running us out of New Orleans. Now, in 2006, that, that happened in 2005, as you know, Katrina hit New Orleans, one year after we met. When we get back to New Orleans in 2006, I didn't realize that Phoebe was, and I'm talking about Miss Ferguson, was a documentary filmmaker who was in the process of making a documentary film about one of the oldest Mardi Gras clubs in New Orleans, the, the original Illinois club. Now, if you go to our website, go to the website, and that's plessyandferguson.org, and look at Founders. When you go up to Founders, click on that, and you'll see Keith's book under his bio. My bio will have my artwork, some of my artwork, and Ms. Ferguson's documentary member of the club will be on her bio. Now, member of the club was an interesting documentary. What happened, she was filming it before Katrina, and everybody she filmed was middle and upper middle class blacks in New Orleans that had just about everything they worked for. And during the film, Katrina hits in the middle of it, so they lose everything. And she captured all that in her documentary. So when she got back in 2006, along with me coming from Memphis, she was completing the film, so she asked me to get a speaking part in the film. So she did a little interview on me. And a year later, in 2007, we hadn't seen each other for a while, so we go to this exhibit that was being held at the Louisiana Supreme Court building. And that's in the French Quarter, right in the center of the French Quarter, across from Brennan's, one of the famous restaurants or whatever. Well, we, we go into the exhibit, and we hadn't seen each other for a while, so during the day leading up to the exhibit, the Times-Picayune, our local newspaper, had asked us for some interviews. So we talked to him, she talked to him separately, I talked to him separately, and you know, we meet at the exhibit and we hug each other. So when we hugged each other, the cameras started flashing. And we're thinking, okay, they interviewed us, tomorrow we'll go flip the pages on the newspaper to the back and we'll see this article about us, I think. So when we woke up the next morning, she called me and I called her almost the same time. We were on the front page of the newspaper. So then we started thinking, you know, maybe we ought to do something. So we thought about groups that had tried to take the spot where Homer Plessy was. It's, it's an, a vacant lot at the time. And another group had tried before Katrina in about 2000. The name of that group is the Crescent City Peace Alliance. And they're one of our partners. They failed before Katrina to put something in that spot. So what we did is we called upon them to join us to try to do something again in that spot. So from 2008, we formed a committee. And then by 2009, we had organized the plaque to be put up by the state, which you see right here. And Keith always says that 
you would never know that that case took place in New Orleans because there's nothing to remind you that it happened. So now we have a spot that we have marked that is designated as a spot where Homer Plessy was arrested in New Orleans. So future generations will know where this happened and what happened according to what's on the plaque. So that's been our mission in the beginning to just mark spots. And we've taken on several spots in New Orleans that history took place in. And we've, we've marked a second spot where history took place in 1960 in New Orleans. There were four six-year-old girls that integrated the public schools in New Orleans for the first time. There was, you may all know, Ruby Bridges. Anybody ever heard of Ruby Bridges? Okay. Have you ever heard of Leona Tate, Tessie Prevost, and Gail Etienne? That's the other, that's the, that makes the four girls. Those three girls integrated McDonough 19 in New Orleans the same day that Ruby Bridges integrated William France. And the story was never told in whole because the media grabbed on to one little girl and forgot about three little girls. So the history is now marked at McDonough 19 with another plaque like this to let the people know in the city that that history took place in that spot. And the full story about all four is on the plaque. So that's another area in New Orleans that we've marked. So that's been our beginning goals. But what happens as a result of that is that communities begin to gather around these spots and they try to uplift the community. After they see that history took place here and everybody embraces the history, then they come together and as a result, this spot, over the next few years, uh, the National Urban League, um, we also have the Kellogg Foundation we're seeking. Uh, there's a project called the Plessy Project. And if you go to capital P, L-E-S-S-Y, capital P, R-O-G-A-E-T-J-E-C-T, dot com, that's the Plessy Project. Use capital P's on the P's. And you'll see the website for the Plessy Project, there's a future development that will happen in this spot so that future generations will know what happened there. So, Keith? Yeah. Um, we are going to go through a few slides uh, to show you some of the work we have done. This is a uh, Actually, this is 1994. I want, I want to bring you kind of through uh, to see how all of this evolved. So this is 1994, and that's myself on the left, and now Louise Mouton Johnson, who is a visual artist, talk, uh, signing, this is copies of the Smithsonian Magazine. And uh, so this was 1994. The gentleman uh, right there is Russell Plessy, who is Keith's. My dad's cousin, first cousin. dad's cousin. So he, he, was, he came to that. Keith, you didn't make that, did you? Well, that event I missed, but I, I took some pictures, uh, which was, you'll flash later with the whole family. Okay. And we had a chance to take pictures. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a Smithsonian article. I signed it to myself, March 19th, 1994. That's when it came out. And I, I wrote, when I wrote this article, uh, I, I realized that the 100th anniversary was coming. So 
you, you know, if you want to get something noticed, you have to do it on the anniversary. So when I realized the 100th anniversary was coming, I tried to kind of scoop everybody. So my article came out in 1994. And so I laid the... This is when I first, uh, this case began to become redefined as somebody who was just somebody who was arrested on a train for passing to white to something that was more like a modern day civil rights movement. This is, uh, you want to talk about your family? Keith? I'll go from left to right. That's Russell who has passed away. He looks like a, a Western movie star with a gray beard. That's his son, Russell Jr. That's Christopher and right on the left side of Russell and Russell Jr., well, the third. That's Constance in the back. Uh, his wife, uh, Sylvania. Sylvania. My wife, Marietta. My daughter, who's between us, that's me on the end. That's Kayla, and that's Mia at the bottom. That's my two daughters. They're both, uh, Mia is 23 now, and Kayla is 21. So that's how small they were in 1996. Time passes. <laughs> This is at the uh, Cabildo. This is, uh, the Cabildo is, uh, was a, is a built, historic building in New Orleans that was once the seat of Spanish power in the Louisiana territories. And uh, from left to right is Jack Greenberg from the NAACP Educational uh, Legal Defense Fund. Then there's uh, Russell Plessy uh, about to shake hands with Constance Baker Motley, who was the first African-American federal judge and in the middle of those two is John Hope Franklin, who uh, passed away recently, who was one of uh, the premier black historians. And there's Preston Royal Street, where the plaque now sits. But in this particular time, was that 96, Keith? I, I think that it. was way before that. Yeah, yeah. well, it might have been around that time. Uh, that's when the corner looked like that, when it was nothing there. And, and now you have plans for a massive project to take place on that corner. This, is, uh, this is also happened in 1996. In addition to doing the uh, 100th anniversary, Homer Plessy's plaque is in St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. I don't know how many of you have been to New Orleans and went to the cemeteries, but uh, cemeteries are a big thing in New Orleans. Uh, but Plessy's plaque, uh, and it was, it was what was happening to him throughout his life, but Plessy's plaque was not being taken care of. Uh, it, it was falling apart, the headstone fell apart. So as part of the 1996 effort, we went to St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 and restored his plaque to, his, to the way it should be. And this is in the cemetery. Uh, this is part of the cemetery. This is a, a parade. Everything in New Orleans has to have a parade. So when we redid Homer Plessy's plaque, we had to have a parade. The uh, person in front of the parade is the Grand Marshal. He's a Roman Catholic priest, Father Jerome Ledoux, who was uh, the pastor of St. Augustine's Church, which was the church where Homer Plessy married Louise Bordenave in 1888. And you can see the musicians behind him. And this, is, uh, this happens particularly if a jazz musician dies. There's always a parade, and there's always something called the second line, so after you mourn the dead, then you sort of go through something that's more party-like atmosphere to release your spirit in joy uh, into the heavens. Can I make a point? Sure. Yeah. Um, they also, in this instance, with this particular second-line uh, burial ceremony, 
was representative of Homer Plessy dying in his time, thinking that freedom would never be for real. That, that it, was, it, was, it was a dark time in his life when he passed away because, like uh, I think you said earlier today, Keith, that the Ku Klux Klan had a massive parade 20, in Washington, D.C. 25,000. The year he died. So he thought that freedom was never going to come. You know, so in this case, in 1996, when we did the, the mock funeral for him, it was to bury him as a free man. Keith, this is uh, Larry Bagneris. Now that is the group, that's, that's the ceremony that was held in 2005, June 7th, to establish Plessy Day. I was wearing a t-shirt earlier today for anybody who saw it, and it had June 7th, 1892. That was the date he was arrested. And we celebrate uh, June 7th every year in New Orleans as Plessy Day now. We've done it for four straight years, and it, it, it gets us to combine history and art together to teach lessons about segregation and what it affects, how it affects us today. Uh, this, this happened, uh, we were talking about Plessy's plaque. Uh, during Hurricane Katrina, or even right before, the, uh, the headstone actually fell to the ground. It was in a number of different pieces. So, uh, and it would be hard to repair. So the Cabildo, once again, the Louisiana State Museum, they took the plaque and placed it in what was called the Sala Capitula Room, which was also where Homer Plessy's case was decided by the Louisiana State Supreme Court. And once again, there was a party, there was fun, and we had music uh, by John Boutte and Carla Blanc. Uh, and so that was another event. Uh, there was even a, a song that came from that called His Last Parade. It was a jazz tune by Carla Blanc. This is Phoebe Ferguson, and uh, what you see down into her left, that's the plaque, that's what was his headstone, it's written in French, uh, it's, it says Dupart, his name is not really on the plaque, but, oh yeah, it is, uh, Homer A. Plessy, and it has his dates on it. And so, but it's being preserved at the Louisiana State Museum. And this is Keith and I on television. Uh, this is right before, this is when we were trying to get the plaque for the four girls who integrated the schools. And that's Sally Ann Roberts. Anybody who knows from sports about Robin Roberts, uh, and that's her sister. And this is Keith. Uh, they get treated like a rock star in New Orleans. These, the, one of these ladies was a lawyer, and she was familiar with Plessy versus Ferguson. So she was taking her bridesmaids to see the plaque. And, <laughs> They're rock stars, you know. So, uh, and I'm looking at this. And uh, so Keith is talking to them and everything. But, people, you know, it's gratifying now to go uh, to see all the people who come to visit the plaque. And this is uh, Washington Post, June 6, 2011. Plessy and Ferguson, this is made front page news. Descendants of a divisive Supreme Court decision unite by Robert Barnes. And that's uh, Keith and Phoebe standing on the tracks in New Orleans at Royal and Press Street. And uh, that article was really well received, and uh, only one person had something bad. There was only one bad thing said in all the comments, which is rare in today's 
divisive society. No matter what you put up, somebody will be angry about it and say something snarky. And this is our... Talk about Plessy Day. On this particular not, not day Plessy is day. the day we unveiled the plaque for the first time. Uh, in 117 years it took after his arrest to have something erected in the spot where he was arrested to let people know what happened. And on that day, you see an empty chair next to me because uh, there was a speaker actually talking. He was out of the seat. But in, in reality, Phoebe Ferguson actually couldn't make that unveiling because she was in the hospital. She was hit by a truck on her scooter from the night before we had celebrated and we had thought about all we were going to say when we unveiled the plaque. The next day, she was in the hospital. I had no speech. I, I had nothing to say. I, I was like a deer in headlights. But through prayer the night before, the answer came to me is to, to, to let her daughter, who sits next to me right there, and my daughter, Kayla, uh, unveil the plaque. So it was fitting that our daughters unveiled the plaque rather than us. You know, I wasn't going to touch the plaque without her being there, and the perfect thing was to have our daughters unveil the plaque. You know, and it was, there was another situation that I realized right after the plaque was unveiled, I realized it was 117 years for anything to happen there, and my daughter was 17 years old. So it meant that she was born in 1992, so I guess 1892, that would be 100 years. So it, it seems that we keep running into 100-year anniversaries with everything that we do. The day we unveiled the plaque, it was the 100th anniversary of the NAACP being formed. It was the 200th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's birth and the 100th anniversary of the song Lift Every Voice and Sing. So that's uh, Noel and Kayla unveiling the plaque. That's myself and our uh, historian Raphael Kashmir at the site of the plaque, same day. And that's Keith and Phoebe. You want to tell us what you guys are up to? Yeah, we were actually working on the plaque for the girls in 1960 that integrated the public schools in New Orleans. We were uh, looking at documents and different things. D-Day Museum popped up because on June 7th, Homer Plessy Day is celebrated. D-Day is June 6th. So we always try to do something for veterans on that day when we celebrate Homer Plessy Day. Last time we had uh, a Tuskegee Airman, a living Tuskegee Airman that lives in New Orleans that came to the event. And we have descendants that come to the event all the time from members of the Citizens Committee. We have the Day Dunes that showed up. We have some Martinets that we're interested in coming in that uh, were all important people in the Citizens Committee. And some of the descendants are still alive and we're able to talk to them. And they make Plessy Day every year. This is, uh, Keith, you want to talk about this one? Oh, yes. This, this is the stairwell where these girls are going up now with that boarded door was where it's the front entrance of McDonough 19 and what it looks like today. It's boarded up, and these are the three women that integrated it when they were six years old. On this particular day when we unveiled their plaque, she has a granddaughter who is six years old in the middle. That's Leona Tate. I want to move up a little bit. This is Tessie Prevost. This is Leona Tate, and that's Gail Etienne. 
Representative from the mayor's office gave them proclamations that day, and Keith Medley was, of course, congratulating them when they came up to get their proclamations. And now, uh, these four girls, uh, Ruby Bridges, uh, it was four girls, Ruby Bridges was one, but I was born during a civil, I was born during separate but equal. And I remember one of the first things seen in 1960 was uh, those girls, those three girls, the six-year-old on television being escorted by federal marshals up those stairs. And it kind of stuck with me. So, and on the 25th anniversary, I wrote an article for the, Trib uh, for the New Orleans Tribune for that. But they have, uh, like if, I don't know how it is now, but I know before, when it, if you would Google Ruby Bridges, you get 15,000 hits. If you re Google the other three girls, it'll be nine or 10. And most of them were for stuff I did or so one other person did. So it was important for us, and this is the 50th anniversary, and not only were they there, but they also, the federal marshals who escorted them also came down, and they were well into their age too. But uh, so I thought it was a great event, and the federal marshals, and that was the first time they had seen each other since 1960 when the schools were integrated. And this is Leona Tate also uh, unveiling the plaque. That's her son to the right of her. And this is in the Lower Ninth War. We also, we also did this after Katrina. One of our purposes was to bring a pulse to that area of the city during those times. And I worked out very well. It was, you know, we had a lot of issues uh, finding places to rent that were nearby, but that plaque is now on St. Claude Avenue as an eternal memorial to their struggles. And that's uh, Keith, Phoebe, and myself at that plaque. Keith? Now, this particular photo shows from the far left is Mark Moriel, the president and CEO of the National Urban League, myself, Leona Tate, and Keith. Uh, Mark came out on a tour that day with the entire National Urban League team. Uh, it was a tour sponsored for them to just look around the city at sites. At the time, I had time to mention to Mark about the project that NOCA was working on for the Plessy Project. That was in 2011. This year, 2012, in July, we attended the National Urban League Conference with complimentary exhibit space and we were able to talk about the Plessy Project. And now Mark Moriel is officially uh, a co-chair of the fundraising committee to build the Plessy Project. This is an example of the Plessy Project. Um, it's, going to, it's going to have an auditorium, which is here. You have meeting rooms. And there will be two offices here. It says foundation office, foundation office. The plan is to have the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation housed in the Plessy Project, accessible to the high school students, which NOCA is an art conservatory traditionally, and now they're going into academics. So this would be the history building when it's built, and there will be other buildings dedicated to science, to English, creative writing. They already have a media team. They're doing all kinds of things at the school, and eventually they're talking about expanding NOCA from just a high school to a junior college because they have enough, it's not showing on this map, but they have six blocks of property that they have obtained and the project is being worked on by Manning Architects in New Orleans 
and they have uh, several plans. The whole project will be called the Gateway Project, but the Plessy Project is the spearhead of the Gateway Project. Oh, right. that's my front right, porch. You. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, that's me. So that's uh, yeah. Keith, and was that after Katrina? No, that was, if you look at the yeah, length. Yeah, because Phoebe has long hair you can, now. you can look at the length of Miss Ferguson's hair, even though she's not here. Uh, the early pictures would be when she, her hair was long. The later pictures would be when her hair is short. This mm -hmm. one was taken before Katrina, and my wife took that picture. Oh. And uh, we made clear that Phoebe was not killed during that trucking, uh, that wreck with the truck, so she's still around. And as a matter of fact, when she went to the hospital, the nurse that first saw her was Keith's wife. So, <laughs> thank you, Keith. Oh, you're welcome, sir. Okay. All right, so now we're going to, uh, who are these people who, who are, who are uh, uh, the people who came to form the Plessy versus Ferguson? Who were they in the, uh, that, in the late uh, 1800s? Homer Plessy was born, Homer Patrice Plessy in New Orleans on St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 1863. That's his birth certificate, so he's cool. He has uh, a... <laughs> So uh, both of his uh, people say, well, about the one-eighth white, but both of his parents were classified as free people of color. And that was people in Louisiana who had voting and civil right, voting rights before uh, the Civil War, but didn't have, they didn't have voting rights, but they had economic rights. And uh, his name was French, it's Omer Patrie Plessy. At first his middle name was uh, Patrick because it was St. Patrick's Day when he was born. And, uh, but he later changed it to uh, Adolf after his father. So Homer Plessy's uh, home at the time he caught the train was located at 1108 North Claiborne in the Treme area, and that was his block. Now that block has been destroyed by an interstate, but in 18, uh, when he was living there, uh, that was where it is on, between Ursulines and Hospital on North Claiborne Avenue in Treme. Right next to his house, uh, you see the uh, yellow marking, was Congregation Hall. And every Saturday night, they had grand dancing festivals with string bands. Uh, that, so it was a lively neighborhood, and it still is. That's John Howard Ferguson. He was born in 1838. He was a native of Martha's Vineyard. He studied the law in Boston. And after the Civil War, he journeyed, journeyed to New Orleans as a carpetbagger and settled in uptown New Orleans, Louisiana. He practiced civil law and was a member of the Louisiana legislature in 1877. In 1892, then Governor Murphy Foster appointed him to be the lead judge in Section A of the Orleans Parish Criminal Court, a month before Plessy stood before him. This is Judge Ferguson's house. Uh, it's in uptown New Orleans, and it's in roughly the same condition it was when he ruled on Homer Plessy. This is Albion Tourgier, I made some mention to him. And uh, this is who the committee engaged as their national attorney. Tourgier was a best-selling author that wrote over 20 books, mainly pointed novels about the Reconstruction period. Like Brown versus Board of Education, Albion Tourgier would mount a legal defense based on the 14th Amendment that guaranteed equal treatment for all. Tourgier was a white lawyer who argued the case before the Supreme Court in April of 1896. 
This is the era. It shows how Louisiana had a long history of civil rights. Uh, this is right after the Civil War. And in 1867, there was a success successful attempt by black Union soldiers and others to, to desegregate mule-powered streetcars. There was an abolitionist group called, of Southerners called the Loyal National League. They held the first integrated political rally ever on the 4th of July in 1863. Torches, banners, and American flags waved in a nighttime breeze. And according to the League's minutes, white men and women, black men and women, shouting aloud in concert, gave three cheers for Abraham Lincoln. And then a black man named Reverend James Keelan strolled to the lectern and stated, Fellow citizens, this is the first time for 87 years that the son of Africa is permitted to join in a public celebration of the 4th of July. We have passed through trials and persecutions. We have been chained and handcuffed for 250 years. Tonight, the son of Africa holds his head high up to the public. Our country has given us our rights. We have now to defend them. Uh, this is uh, th this was called the Unification Movement, and it was a, it was a, uh, an effort by uh, people right after the Civil War and right after Reconstruction to bring the races together. And th these are these are signatories to it. So their board of directors had 50 black uh, uh, people and 50 white people, and their goal was to bring Louisiana up to the standards of equality that was outlined in the 14th Amendment. And this is the Louisiana legislature of uh, 1890. And this is the legislature that passed the law that said that whites and blacks have to ride on separate trains. And this is the law that thrust Homer Plessy into history. It was in 1890 when the legislature passed a mean-spirited law that segregated people on railroad trains. In the case of interracial couples, because that was legal in Louisiana at that time, the law physically separated husbands, wives, and children. It mandated that railroad companies provide an additional coach, even if only a few black passengers purchased tickets. For Louisiana legislators of African heritage, there were 18 black members of the Louisiana legislature that year. The law prohibited them from traveling with their fellow government officials or many of their constituents. And this is a member, this, uh, and based on that, a group of people got together to form the Citizens Committee. And that's the members, that's the 18 members that participated. Uh, this is Exchange Alley in the 1890s. That's the Supreme Court building that uh, Plessy uh, in 2007 that Keith talked about. But actually, it is now on a spot where the Citizens Committee actually planned and executed the Plessy versus Ferguson case, but it was demolished in 1909 to put that building up. So the left is the map how it looked before 1909, and that's to the right is how it looks now. Uh, this is the report of the proceedings for annulment of Act 111 of 1890 by the Citizens Committee, and they were very meticulous with their reports. They raised money, and whether you gave a nickel or if you gave hundreds of dollars, you would be on the ledger. Uh, this was the president, Arthur Estevez. He was a philanthropist. He had a, uh, uh, there he is, uh, Faria and Estevez. He was a sail maker, with, and he sold awnings, tropolins, and flags. Most of the members of the Citizens Committee were well-to-do, 
but they did not want their rights to uh, slip away from them. This is C.C. Antoine. He was vice president of the committee, and he was also lieutenant governor of Louisiana in 1872 to 1876. This is Laurent Auguste, who was a philanthropist, and he also was a member of uh, the people who fought for their rights under Reconstruction. Louis Jobert was a member of the Citizens Committee. He was the finance person, and he also was their bookkeeper. Uh, that's Daniel Daydoon on uh, my left, and Rodolphe Daydoon, his father. Daniel Daydoon was the first person, was the first test case. And Daniel Daydoon, but he was exonerated because they wanted to test two cases within the state of Louisiana and for people traveling from one state to another because of the inter interstate uh, problems. And so Daydoon, Rudolph Daydoon uh, wrote a book in 1911 called Our People and Our History where he talked about the contributions of people of color to Louisiana uh, going back to its birth. And uh, Daniel Daydoon taught music and he eventually became a uh, music director at Boys Town in Nebraska. Here's some more Citizens Committee. Uh, that, that's some of their ads from that time, which are always interesting. They had funeral directors and undertakers, coffins of all kinds, carriages to hire, and all charges moderate. And another member, A.J. Zhiranovich, worked in the French Quarter, as, and he was a jeweler. And this is Al C. Labat. He was a member of the Citizens Committee, and he also owned funeral homes. All of the people on the uh, Citizens Committee were people of color, but as you can notice, they, many of them had light complexions. And part of the reason that Plessy was chosen to be the test case because he would be able to get a ticket because of his light complexion and get on the train without being uh, stopped beforehand. Uh, they, put out, uh, they put out many newspapers. They put out uh, the Daily Crusader, which was at one time was the only black daily newspaper in the country, and this is in the 1890s. And to the right is the Crusader, uh, which they put out weekly. And uh, I, I enjoy reading the advertisements. Like if you look at the one to the left at the top on the right, you have someone who had hair this small, but then after five weeks, it's going down you know, all the way to their waist. Uh, this was before there was a Food and Drug Administration, obviously. And this is their report of the Citizens Committee. On the night of the 1st of September, 1891, a few citizens representing various interests were invited to meet at the Crusader office to discuss the abominable separate car statute known as Act Number 111 of 1890 and to take definite action towards offering legal resistance to its operation. And this was their appeal. A lot of people say that the Citizens Committee were only trying to uh, make things better for light-skinned people. And, you know, you had people who didn't like them and everything. But so they wrote very, in very detail what they were going to do. Uh, no further time should be lost. We should make a definite effort to resist legally the operation of the separate car law enacted by the Louisiana legislature at its last session. This obnoxious measure is the concern of all our citizens who are opposed to caste legislation and its consequent injustices and crimes. We therefore appeal to the citizens of New Orleans, of Louisiana, and of the whole Union to give us their moral sanction and financial aid 
in our endeavors to have that oppressive law annulled by the courts, and they signed their names to it. And, you know, doing this during that time was dangerous. Uh, this is their ledger. These are the people that uh, gave money to them. And I was hoping to find Geneva College in here, but I couldn't find it. But as you can see, it was a wide array of people, friends in the six auditor's offices of Washington, D.C., Bricklayers and Masons Union. They had all these French societies that had been around since the Louisiana was founded. Morgan City Women's Home Mission Society, Mount Zion Baptist Church. And they had citizens of all these little Louisiana and Mississippi towns. And this is their uh, receipts and expenditures. This is the Press Street Railroad yard and So for Homer Plessy, uh, so now it was time to act. They had raised money, they had raised $3,000 to get a lawyer, get two adjacent some money so he can get started. So this is where the Press Street Railroad Yards were in the 1890s, and there is a, uh, New Orleans, this is part of the New Orleans and Northeastern Railroad Company, and there, in, in the, there was a depot, and in the depot was a ticket office, uh, which was not segregated at that point, but soon would be. So this is the East Louisiana Railroad ticket. So um, plus he had four tasks out of this whole thing. Get the ticket, get on the train, get arrested, get booked. So on June 7, 1892, Homer plus he traveled nearly two miles from his residence in the Tremaine neighborhood to the train station at Press Street Railroad about two miles away. He purchased a first-class ticket. on the East Louisiana Railroad number eight train that was scheduled to depart at 4.15 p.m. for a two-hour run to Covington, Louisiana. As boarding time neared, Homer walked toward the first-class coach, ignoring the cars with the colored-only designations. He likewise disregarded the prominently posted separate car act. Uh, could you settle it down some, please, sir? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you're supposed, I don't think it's a good idea. Who's sitting there? Uh, okay. Thank you. So you have to leave. You shouldn't be in here. I know who you are. So you're going to have to leave so we can visit. I have a ticket. Change our presentation. You're going to have to leave. I know who you are, and we don't want this to happen. Are you a colored man? Yes, I'm a colored man. Well, then you have to go into the car set aside for your race. This is my ticket. I purchased it, and I'm going to go to Covington, Louisiana. Uh, you better not be here when I get back from uh, checking the tickets. 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 You're still here. You have to leave or I'll call a detective to come here and arrest you. The Louisiana law has been passed to say that blacks and whites should have to ride together on separate trains. If you don't leave, we're going to call the police for you. Mr. Conductor, my name is Keith Plessy. I'm Homer Plessy's descendant. I'm going to ride this train. You're not. Detective Kane, Detective Kane, there's a colored person on board who refuses to leave the train. Detective Kane, I'm a free man. The Constitution gives me the right to ride this train. 14th Amendment gives me the right to ride this train. If you are a colored man, you should go to the car that's set aside for colored folks. The law is the law and it must be obeyed. I need you to stand up and go. I have my ticket. I'm going to ride to Covington. You have to leave, sir. You need to go. 
I'm going to ride to Covington. Get the off 14th the train. Amendment gives me the right to ride this train. Woo! <laughs> was it bang? <laughs> I thought the door was going to slam. <laughs> I couldn't hide as Homer. They knew me already. <laughs> Keith, you're still my... What's <laughs> down the stairs? Basement. Two flights. <laughs> uh, Keith, you're still my... Uh, <laughs> I apologize for that. We've been having these disturbances lately, but. So at 4.35 p.m., 20 minutes after the train's scheduled departure, Detective Kane and a group of volunteers on the train forcibly dragged Plessy from the white-only coach and executed the arrest somewhere near Royal and Press Street at the 5th Precinct Station on Elysian Fields. At the station house, Plessy submitted to the same booking procedures applied to the array of drunks, petty larcenists, and foul-mouthed New Orleanians arrested that same day on the city streets. But his charge of violating the separate car act was anything but a typical Tuesday evening New Orleans petty crime. Members of the Citizens Committee converged at the 5th Precinct Station and had Plessy released on bond. Homer still had his first-class ticket as he and his compatriots walked from the 5th Precinct Station and made their way across Elysian Fields and back toward Treme. They just purposefully, intentionally, and openly defied Governor Murphy Foster, Supreme Court Chief Justice Francis Nichols, and the 1890 legislature. Homer Plessy was not even 30 years old, yet the future of civil rights rode on his day in court. Thank you. So here are some more slides. Uh, this is a state arrest document. There's Detective C.C. Kane, played play by Mr. Jones. Thank you. And thank all of our thespians in the audience. This is the newspaper story on his arrest. In the wrong coach, a snuff-colored descendant of Ham kicks against the Jim Crow law and takes the jail end of it rather than comply with its distinctive provisions. Uh, the newspapers did not... Uh, this was, and so they had about two or three first front page articles after they did this. Uh, this was the violation of a constitutional right, something, another publication by the Citizens Committee. And this was Aristide Mary, who actually brought, uh, used his influence to bring the Citizens Committee together. And in, but in 1893, he killed himself, uh, as you see in his obituary. Uh, Aristide Mary, a well-known politician and capitalist, shot himself in the stomach with a 30 cal 38 caliber revolver three times, according to the newspaper, through the same bullet hole. Uh, and this is the final judgment by the Supreme Court of the United States. This is when it went to term in October of 1895. Uh, this is what happened after the Supreme Court ruled against uh, Homer Plessy and the Citizens Committee. Color service signs all throughout the nation, and especially in the South, where I grew up. I mean, everything had colored or white, no matter how innocuous it was. You know, it could have been a water fountain. Uh, like, uh, we had parks on one side of the a street. One side of a, a avenue would be the white park, and a, a black park with the same name would be on another side. So. And uh, so I, you know, I lived with, I, there was a park right around the corner from my house, and I was 17 years old before I could step, step foot in it. And this was his uh, headstone before it cracked and everything. 
there's the duports that Keith talked about in Homer Plessy. And this is the 14th Amendment. This is what they fought. This is what they were fighting for, the, that the United States listened to the 14th Amendment that said all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States of, and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within his jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. So how the, the way this happened, uh, a lot of people saw this as a equality, but the people who... Uh, the white supremacists in Louisiana saw the equal part as what you would call a loophole. So they made it equal, but then they said we're going to make everything separate, and then it turned out it never was equal at all. So, uh, so they didn't see this as a mandate. They saw it as a loophole. And uh, th these are some... Uh, these, this is the home of Alexander Pierre Turo, who I think he talked something about. And he was the... Uh, the premier lawyer in Louisiana in the uh, 1900s, and much of the information I found about Plessy was in the archives of his work. And there's Keith and Phoebe again. So uh, thank you so much for your time. Notice a lot of history. You know, we had some civil disobedience, but uh, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, Keith and I really appreciate being here and l having you hear our message. Thanks a lot. Okay. Uh, if you have questions on cards, if you want to pass, wave those and, and, and pass those in, or if anybody has a question to start with, we'll take maybe just 10 or 15 minutes for, for questions. Well, I'll, I'll start off with a question. You mentioned earlier that, uh, that the Plessy v. Ferguson case ended up being foundational to Brown versus Board of Education. Can you talk about the connection then? Well, yeah, uh, you, know, you know, a lot of times people see these things that is in isolation, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Actually, it was very interrelated. Uh, uh, like when the NAACP, who uh, brought, brought Brown versus Board of Education up, when, when they first formed, they had three friends of freedom. One was William Lloyd Garrison, the famous abolitionist, and Albion Tourgier was one. And Albion Tourgier was actually... Uh, Plessy's lawyer before the Supreme Court. So, but, and also, the, the, uh, the NAACP also had their arguments based on the 14th Amendment, and it was very similar to how Al, they used Albion Tourget's brief to create their brief for the 14th Amendment, or large parts of it. And one of the uh, Supreme Court justices actually was writing to Tourget about how he went and he saw Albion Tourget's uh, brief and said how that same brief could be written today when we pursue Brown versus Board of Education. And in addition, there were, uh, there were three big civil rights cases, Dred Scott, Brown, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, and Brown versus Board of Education. And that's the three main civil rights cases in uh, United States history. Uh, any other questions or statements?
Uh, what were some of the challenges you faced while trying to set all of this up? Uh, uh, as far as uh, setting us up as a Plessy Foundation? Yeah. Oh, well, were there challenges? There were a lot of challenges. Well, number one, people were uh, getting out of town because of Katrina. That was a big challenge. And I think that was the main challenge. And then when we were doing it, you had a lot of people who, uh, I remember when I wrote, wrote an article, uh, a black person complained that, well, Plessy was just there to, uh, to help light-skinned people. And he wrote a letter to the paper, you know. And a lot of people had what they, you know, what they thought was the truth about Plessy versus Ferguson. But I, I, you know, I went into it not knowing exactly how Plessy came about. You know, I thought it was just someone who got on a train trying to pass for white and somebody outed them, and so they were arrested, and then the guy got a lawyer. That's what I thought, and a lot of people thought it was something like that. But it was, you know, you had to do a lot of research, and you have, we have to talk a lot to kind of set the record straight. Uh, my biggest challenge was just trying to have a nine to five and do all of this research. But, uh, you know, like Keith says, uh, the path was made for him. It seems like the path was made for me. So there were a lot of challenges along the way. You know, writing is, uh, having published something is fun, but actually, to me, writing it is uh, a lot of grunt work. So that was just a, that was an extremely big challenge. And, you know, if you notice, it's very detailed uh, what, what I write about. So that meant spending a lot of time, uh, you know, away from things I would rather be doing, being in archives, driving to, uh, well, I did get a chance to go to Niagara Falls by driving to Erie, uh, Lake Erie and everything. So those were the challenges for me. Keith and Phoebe have a lot, had other challenges. Now, was that question twofold in terms of the foundation as well, how the foundation was formed? Yes. Yeah, well, to, when I, I was trying to explain in the beginning, which I kind of went from one end to the other, but in 2000, in the year 2000, Keith's book wasn't even published. Um, the group, that's, their name is embossed on the, the plaque. It's called the Crescent City Peace Alliance. They had worked, and I worked with their organization from 2000 up until the storm in 2005. And that black and white picture that showed some people standing up with a sign, those were the guys that worked to get something erected on that corner, but they failed and Katrina hit. So uh, some of the difficulty in forming the foundation surrounded that plaque and where it was going to go. And in 2008, right before we set the plaque up to form the foundation, we got the groups that were working since 2000 to join us. And we announced the foundation on that day. So the foundation wasn't difficult to put together. Uh, but I would tell you that the work we have ahead of us is definitely some, some long, stretched out work that will last generations after us. So it's, it's important that in forming this foundation that we build a, a foundation of work, uh, a body of work that generations to come can expand on. So it, I don't see difficulty, you know what I mean? A lot of people have doubt about things, but I don't. You know, I, I just, where, where I work um, for 31 years, you know, uh, you get attitudes from different people about what you're doing. Like Keith said, there, were only one, there was only one negative comment when the Washington Post article came out. Well, where I worked for 31 years, I can tell you that it's, it's a 31-year training process in how to treat people right. Because I'm a bellman. I greet people at the door. I help them with directions. 
I set up reservations for them. I make sure they're happy. So the work that we have to do is bring people together. So it almost trained me for 31 years in how to have patience with working with different people. You know, in my job, you can't prejudge. I, I live on tips, basically. So if I treat somebody unfair, I'm not going to get tipped. I'm going to go home broke. So, and I practice in my, in my long career there to come in there with nothing in my pocket so, to remind me that this is what I'll be if I don't do my job. <laughs> so when I leave, I'm usually okay in the pocket. But that means I treated everybody right. I did everything I had to do on that job. I performed my job to my best. So that 31-year training process is what I take into being the president of this foundation. Because for years and years, segregation has separated us, and there's other issues that separate us in society. And what I'm looking at is as many opportunities we have to bring people together, we'll attack those things. We'll go at those things. But we want to bring people together. That's the main goal. I was, uh, hi, I teach history, and I was uh, <laughs> thinking about the one paragraph that you talked about that tends to be in textbooks. I'm wondering if it's your sense that the, um, that the story of this Citizens Committee and the way this was, was this lost even to the civil rights community between 1890 and 1950, 1950s? Or was this story that was something that was known and just... Even within the civil rights community, your sense is that it was kind of a forgotten story. Well, uh, I think uh, the NAACP, when they, when they, they had uh, the Niagara Movement, which was a precursor to the NAACP, they named, they specifically, out of three people, they specifically pointed to Plessy's lawyer. So that part was known. But other than that, uh, and then from that point on, everybody was trying to get the law overturned. Knowing the backstory was not a priority from then until 1960, because they were trying to, all they wanted to do is get this law overturned. So I think uh, outside of people in archives, people may have known about the story, family lore, but, any, but no, I don't know of anybody who actually did, who were the people who brought the case, which was my focus. And it was kind of like a New Orleans-centric version, because that's where the case started. But not, no, when I was growing up, I, was, I, I didn't know until I was in my 30s that Plessy versus Ferguson happened in New Orleans. So it was nowhere in the public domain. So. And, uh, and I'm sure if it was like that way in New Orleans, can you imagine how it was in other parts of the country? Hey, we, have, we have one last question. Um, what was it like being a, a descendant from Plessy and uh, like do you feel like entitled to actually do something about it, I, I suppose? I mean, not, not to say it in that sense, but I like, how did that make you feel that somebody like that in, that you related to changed a major part of history, helped change it? Well, I can tell you that um, I didn't choose to do this. I felt like I was chosen to do this. Uh, I have members of my family that are professors that uh, uh, I have some that are very talented uh, engineers and architects. And they didn't pursue keeping this legacy alive. In my case, you know, there's so many similarities to my life and Homer's life that it was almost as though I didn't choose any of this. All of it was already set up for me to do. Because if, you, if I go back to his life, for instance, his mother, 
was a seamstress. His father was a master carpenter. My father's a master carpenter. My mother is a seamstress. Those things where I work, for instance, at the Marriott Hotel downtown New Orleans, it's only four blocks from where he worked as a shoemaker. Where I grew up on Claiborne Avenue was the 1900 block. He grew up in the 1100 block of Claiborne Avenue. So many things happened to me in my life where what Keith said, he didn't know about the case until what age? Oh, 30 or so? Yeah. When I was I a small- I know about the case, I didn't know about the backstory. Well, when I was a small kid, there were some things that were happening to me that I wasn't aware of, but we, I grew up in the seventh ward of New Orleans, which is where a lot of the people that continued the work of the Citizens Committee through the 1900s, most of those folks lived in my neighborhood. So they built a school called Valina C. Jones School. This school is an elementary school that was built because there were no schools for black children in the neighborhood. And they started their fight in 1905 to build a school. By 1929, that fight ended with the school being built by the hands of the community and a $250,000 award from the Orleans Parish Public School Board, which was unheard of in the Depression. So these were some smart lawyers. One of the head lawyers in that group was A.P. Turo, the guy that the plaque was put up in front of his house and the people were standing in front of his house. Well, A.P. Turo was mentored by Rodolph Daydune, one of the Citizens Committee members, as a young lawyer when he graduated from Howard University. A.P. Turo worked side by side with Thurgood Marshall on many cases, including Brown. So in that neighborhood, when they built that school, a lot of famous black people went to that school. Dutch Moriel, the convention center is named after him in New Orleans. Uh, Andrew Young, former mayor of Atlanta and UN ambassador. All these guys went to that school. And I went to that school as a child in that neighborhood in the, in the 60s. And my teachers were so well versed in history that they would take me, when they would talk about the Plessy case, to the class. And they had that paragraph. But they went beyond the paragraph to talk to the kids about where it happened. And they let us know that it was in New Orleans where it happened. And they would stand me up in front of the classroom. They would say, hey, Plessy, come up. And I was totally unaware what was happening. I, I, I tried to understand, you know, my relationship to him. None of those answers were there. For my whole life until 1996, I didn't know my direct connection to the man. But I did have an introduction as a child that someday maybe I might be standing in front of groups of people and exposing my ancestors' legacy. So I accepted humbly. Um, I'm grateful for everything that's happened because I didn't do all this research. You know, but my friend stands here next to me who did all the research. And the biggest reward out of all that through the book is meeting my, ancest my ancestors' uh, descendants from, that live in Lake Charles Parish. Now I know my white relatives. Nobody's afraid to say we're related because they're white and I'm black. And my best friend in the world, aside from my wife, is Phoebe Ferguson. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, Keith, you next. I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> well, no, know, but you, they kind of like uh, Romeo and Juliet of the civil rights movement, you know. No, but we're really friends. That's the bottom line of it all. And, you know, we both enjoy doing this work. And we committed to doing it because we know that what we do today with this foundation 
will make a difference for generations to come. And what the, the case did in 1896 was a serious amount of damage to the country. The results of it was, was pretty damaging to everything that we're supposed to represent as a country according to our Constitution. So what we have a chance to do is mend all that and start individually with one person at a time to change hearts and minds, to get people to think the right way as Americans because we're not colors, we're people. That's a good ending. <laughs> Thank you.